This is Beth Bruno, and you're listening to the Fierce and Lovely Podcast. On this podcast, I amplify the feminine voice and curate feminine glory so that you, my listener, find your own fierce and lovely story. It has become somewhat of a sacred journey for me to uncover the stories of women from around the world throughout time and present day. The more fierce and lovely women I explore, the more I fall in love with the one in whose image we reflect. My hope is that in this space, you embrace your own beautifully ordinary life as the majority story most of us are living. to episode 48 of the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Today we get to visit the Horn of Africa because my guest, Rachel Pye Jones, has been living there for the last 17 years. Rachel is a runner, an educator, a writer, a wife, a mom, a Minnesotan. Her new book, Stronger Than Death, How Annalena Tonelli Defied Terror and Tuberculosis in the Horn of Africa, tells how this Italian woman's story intersected her own in Somalia and Djibouti. You know I love a good story of someone living overseas or well-versed in another culture. Rachel's life is just that. But what she discovered is that Annalena's life held its own lessons. Lessons of fierce and lovely, compromise, controversy, and humanity. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Rachel. Rachel, welcome to the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Thank you for having me. I am so excited for my listeners to hear from you. I I myself am so curious about the life that you're living and this really intriguing book that you are releasing in October. And so let's dive right in, if you don't mind, because I would love to start with where you live and why you're there and what led you to that part of the world that I had to actually look up on a map earlier this morning. (laughs) Sure. So I am originally from Minnesota, which is where I am as we're talking, but my family has spent the last 17 years in the Horn of Africa, one year in Somalia, and then 16 years in a country called Djibouti, which, yeah, a lot of people have to look it up on a map. So it's it's pretty small. It's in the Horn of Africa, kind of shaped like a Pac-Man, with the mouth part opening onto the Red Sea, And it's surrounded by Somalia, Ethiopia, Eritrea, and then Yemen across the water. And um, we moved there, my husband and I, with two-year-old twins in 2004 to Djibouti um, from Somalia. So we first, in 2003, went to Somalia, spent a year there where my husband was a professor at the only functioning university at the time. And then because of some violence in the region, we had to leave and just resettled across the border where he was invited again to be a professor at the university in Djibouti. And then about four years ago, we launched our own international school. So that's what we're doing there now, um, involved in education and development work. So yeah, that's it's um, an unusual part of the world to a lot of Americans, but to us, it's really become home. Oh, I'm sure. 17 years is a really long time. Mm-hmm. That's the only home your, your girls, are, are they 
They're girl twins, correct? Yeah, uh, the twins are a boy girl, and then I actually gave birth to our third child. They, yeah, and she's a girl, so we have. Okay, so that's that's the only home they know. Yeah, absolutely. And are they so? Just real quickly, family, mom, your mom, and those kids must be like 19, 19 years old now. Are they here in the states in college? Yeah, the twins are nineteen, and then our youngest is our youngest is thirteen. Um, she was born there. So the the twins, one of them is in, uh, he'll be at University of Wisconsin in the fall for his sophomore year. And our daughter is officially studying in Minnesota, but she's spending a university abroad in Australia, uh, semester abroad in Australia. So we have scattered. <laughs> and you guys are returning to Djibouti not too long from now, correct? And so you'll return just with a 13-year-old, I suppose. Correct. Yep. In 10 days. Well, Rachel, can you give us a a little snapshot of what life is like in the Horn of Africa? Um, It sounds like it's probably a beautiful area right there by the Red Sea, but the countries that surround it are often on the news in terms of conflict and civil war and political strife. So can you just paint a picture for us of what that looks like for you to do life there? Sure. So yeah, Djibouti itself is very stable and peaceful, and it has been for for quite some time. The country is 42 years old, um, and since the late 90s, it's been very peaceful. Um, But yeah, it's in this very volatile region. And so as an expat family there, we've we've really been able to establish a good life. It's um, a small city, a small country, less than a million people which means we really know a lot of our neighbors. We know our community really well. Um, and we've been there for so long that uh, it, we feel like we're part of the, the country, part of the development of the nation. Um, so it's very, very hot. That's one of the things people often first notice about the country. Right now in August, it's probably about uh, 45 degrees Celsius or 115, 120 Fahrenheit. Um, it's a majority Muslim country. About 95% of the population is Muslim. So we, there's Somali, a people group called the Afar people, and a lot of Arabs from Yemen. And so, you know, our day-to-day life is structured by the rhythms of Islam, meaning there's the call to prayer five times a day, which you can hear, you know, everywhere in the city. There's mosques on a lot of the corners. And then there's the, the weekly rhythm, which means Friday is our day off. It's the day of worship. And so the weekend is Friday, Saturday, as opposed to Saturday, Sunday. And then the yearly rhythm of all the Islamic holidays and month of Ramadan, which is their month of fasting. And so that's really formed kind of the, the routine and the, the pattern of our days. And at the same time as um, forming that the structure pattern, it's also formed our faith pattern in a way of the call to prayer reminds me to pray. I'm a Christian and um, it still reminds me to pray. And the month of fasting reminds me to fast. And Muslims are very generous in giving to the poor. And so that's something that, you know, is just part of our daily life that we, we see and we interact with people who have those same spiritual values. Um, and that's been really meaningful as our family has grown up there. And um, so then our, our work schedule is at the school. I work at the school and then I write in the afternoon. So Rachel, is there quite a large expat community there or do you feel like um, 
you know, as a foreign family, it's it's quite rare to see other foreigners. There's actually quite a large expat population, uh, which I wasn't quite expecting. I didn't know what to expect, but it's a former French colony. And so there's a lot of French military uh, families and uh, still there, they have military presence. And so even in the businesses and companies, you see a lot of expats and a lot of Europeans, especially other Africans, expats who have come there for work. Um, and so it, it's not unusual to see other foreigners. We um, have tried to integrate and not maintain an expat, you know, separate kind of life. And so we live in a Djiboutian neighborhood and um, we've tried to really incorporate a lot of Djiboutian cultural things and food and things like that. But I, I don't feel like we stick out in a really kind of shocking way the way we did in Somalia. So that's nice as a family. But there are, you're close to Somalia and there's a lot of Somalians in Djibouti, it sounds like. Yep. Uh, they're the Somali is how they say it. And um, I think it's about 60% populated by Somalis and they're, they've just been there historically. So, um, you know, back in the colonial days, France uh, took or France colonized the part that is now Djibouti. And then the British colonized Northern Somalia, the Italian colonized Southern Somalia, and they kind of drew all these borders arbitrarily um, and then when the countries got independence, they became separate nations. But ethnically, it's very homogenous in the Horn of Africa. Well, thanks for just some of those details. I think that's, I, I find that fascinating to try and understand the context in which you're living and, and writing from. And the book that you're coming out with, Stronger Than Death, is so so informed by that, right? By where you are and the story that's unfolding. And so let's let's go into that a little bit because the story you're telling in this book and the story you're researching is my kind of story. It's it's the story of a woman who has shaped this place where you find yourself. And I I'm so committed to that um, in so many different ways. And so yeah, I'm just really intrigued to hear more about this. So without without telling too many of the details of the book, can you describe a little bit for us how, how you came to tell this particular story of this woman named Annalena? Am I pronouncing her name right? Yep, Annalena Tonelli. Um, yeah, she was an Italian woman uh, who lived in the village where we first moved to in 2003 in Somalia. And the way I came across the story was really personal. I actually never met her. By the time we arrived, she had already spent over 30 years working among Somalis in the Horn of Africa. And so I heard of her, but I never met her in this village. We just weren't there long enough. Um, but actually what happened, and this comes up in the first chapter, so I'll share a little bit about this, is that... Um, she was murdered in Somaliland while we lived there. And that murder, along with another one that happened 10 days later, caused us to flee the country. We were told to leave pretty much right now, grab a suitcase and get to the airport because we don't know what's, what might happen next. And so all of the foreigners who were there left um, in that same sort of two or three day period. And, and then I just, you know, we were evacuated. We literally had one suitcase and these two and a half year old twins. And I didn't really think about the woman at that time, Annalena, and what had happened. Um, 
And then we reestablished our life in Djibouti and we kind of healed from some of that fear and anger even that had stirred up in us from the violence. And a friend of mine who also had worked in Somaliland with us, his name was Matt Erickson, was commissioned by the UNHCR to produce a documentary film of this woman's life. And as he delved into that to produce the movie, he realized this Annalena had lived this extraordinary life of service and radical love and sacrifice and reaching across racial boundaries and ethnic boundaries and religious boundaries and just loving people. And so he said to me, um, I think that you might be interested in looking more into this woman's story. And this was about 2014. So even a decade after we had fled the country um, and I started researching and looking at all that she had done in the region and was just really moved um, by what I discovered. And then I, once I learned some of the things she had been involved in, I, I just, just hooked and wanted to know more. And the personal connection that I felt of like, I also had moved to Africa with this idea that I would um, be useful and, and that my husband would be useful with his educational degree. And yet what we had done was paled in comparison to what Annalena had done. And, and so I was inspired personally and challenged and um, I just wanted to know more. So that's kind of the origin story of the book. And it took five years to get it researched and written and published. But Well, I can imagine you're, I mean, you're not writing a historical fiction book about this woman. You're trying to capture, you know, accurate facts and details of her story. And, and yet she's not, she's no longer living. So you had to do research in terms of finding people who knew her and family members. And what was that process like for you? That was really challenging. Um, it ended up being the absolute best part of writing this book was connecting with people who knew her. But it was hard at first to to get people to be open to talk to me, actually. Um, almost any Somali that I talked to either knew her personally or heard of her, knew her story. And so people locally were really excited to talk about her story, which I just loved being able to connect with them. But her family was pretty reticent, actually, to talk to me. Um, at, right after she was killed, there was a lot of kind of news in her hometown in Italy and um, some controversy. And actually another writer had written a book right after her death, within the first year, that was full of mistakes. And um, it even reproduced some letters that the author said were written by her that weren't written by her. And it, it caused a lot of pain to her family who had just lost this beloved family member. Um, and it, it made them kind of shut down and not want to share her story because they were afraid of how it would be mistold. And so they just weren't talking for a long time. But what happened over the years is that they realized people were going to tell her story anyway. She had won a really high award in the UNHCR. This uh, is called the Nansen Refugee Award. Um, and so she was known as a, a person, especially in Italy, and her story was being told incorrectly. And so when I approached the family at first and asked, um, you know, if I could talk with them, if I could have access to some of her letters and documents, they said no. And uh, it took almost a year of myself and also my research partner, Matt Erickson, of kind of massaging that relationship and, and explaining like our pers my personal connection to her story and how we had lived in the same village and and just really trying to say we want to honor her memory and tell the story 
correctly. You know, we want to make sure that there aren't any mistakes and that we're able to um, really highlight what she did and, and not even to make her, you know, a perfect person, but to, ha- to even show some of the mistakes that she made and to really um, develop her story in the fullness of who she was as a human. And so after about a year of slowly, you know, interacting with them and sharing with them some of my other work that I've written, they eventually said yes, <laughs> which was really wonderful. Um, so I went to Italy, actually, and I met her siblings and her best friends and some of her coworkers. And once the family member said, yes, we want Rachel to be the one to tell the story, then every other door just opened and people really were willing to to talk with me and to to share. And some of the, the stories people shared were deeply emotional. Um, you know, she had been held hostage for a while with another some other aid workers, and I talked with some of them. And so their experiences of, of being with her in that moment, or she had her main focus in Africa was working with Somali nomads who had tuberculosis and, um, you know, talking with people who she had cured of diseases was really powerful for them to share their story. So it ended up, it took a long time, but it ended up being a huge privilege to be able to access her story and to be the one who could share it. Well, I'm sure it was challenging to, like you said, write about this holistic woman, this this human person, because she had been, I mean, you're a decade away, and she was seen as a hero, a, a saint by some, co- compared to a nun or a, or a missionary. I mean, she was really put on a pedestal, mm-hmm. right, by so many people. And yet you want to tell a more full-hearted story. Was that I imagine that was hard. That's that's a more challenging story to tell. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, at first I even thought of her as those things, as a nun or a missionary or a saint. And yet she wasn't. She wasn't any of those. Um, she was trained in medicine, but not as a full doctor. And she was Catholic, but she wasn't a nun. And she would never have identified herself as a missionary. But I didn't know at the beginning of the research kind of some of the the darknesses, you know, she wasn't a perfect person. And, and so she made some choices, especially in her early years, when she was working with Somalis in Kenya, that were really controversial and quite shocking to me. Um, You know, one of the most shocking ones uh, that when I learned about it, I almost I literally dropped the paper I was reading when I learned in her own handwriting what she had done. Um, There's among Somalis, there's a pretty pretty um, deeply rooted tradition of female genital mutilation, which is also known as female cutting. Um, and and the way mm-hmm. this is talked about most of the time is kind of from the outside. People, you know, from the West or somewhere else sort of speaking into it and, and condemning the practice or things like this. Um, but what I found out with Annalena's story is that in her early years with Somalis, she was so committed to being part of the culture, part of the community and not changing anything um, that was really Somali. She had taken in some orphan children, some girls in particular, who's, she was raising them in her home. And she actually hired a midwife to cut the girls, to circumcise the girls. And uh, when I read that, I thought, what? <laughs> I've never heard of a humanitarian actually being the one to do it 
you know, in our time, the humanitarians are often the ones who are trying to fight this practice. Um, and of course, a lot of Somalis, I mean, they're the ones in, strongly trying to fight the practice now. But at that time, in the early 80s, um, she did this really shocking thing. And it was really surprising to me. And it really turned the conversation about that topic upside down in terms of how we talk about it today. And then later in her life, 20, 25 years later, she became a partner with a Somali midwife who was trying to fight against the practice. And so, so her story is a story of transformation in terms of doing something in the beginning and then learning and growing and being able and willing to admit 20 years later that that was a wrong thing she had done. Um, and then it really gave her a place to speak into this culturally to then start to fight the practice. And so I found that just fascinating. And I feel like today, so many times when people do have that kind of transformation, they're hesitant to admit that they had made a mistake or that they had done something wrong. Um, and so her humility and being willing to admit that and then her courage in you know, publicly confessing it and changing her mind, I, I just found that really fascinating and inspiring. And so, yeah, those things that came up that were really surprising to me um, took her down off this pedestal of being a saint or a perfect person and just made her more like the rest of us who are, you know, making mistakes and fumbling around and trying to love people as best we can and, and not always sure how to do it. Um, yeah, so it's been, it was really, really a powerful story for me personally to be able to tell this. Well, I, I love that as an example for us, like you said, because that's the story most of us are living. And yet it's not one we often get to read about or a lot of our role models or those that are that are offered to us as role models don't have that three-dimensional angle to, to their story or to their life that we get to hear about and learn from. And so I love that. It's it's feels so much healthier for us to follow someone who has made mistakes and learned from them um, and grown, like you said. I'm curious, Rachel, as you have studied her life and yours at the intersection, right, of of being there, but then she's been a part of your life for five years as you've written and researched the book. Where have you seen Fierce and Lovely and Annalena's life and story, and where do you see it in your own? You know, there was a few incidences that people told me about with Annalena where, for example, one, one of the times that she was held hostage where everybody else around her is terrified. And, and these grown men told me, I was crying. I was so afraid. I thought we were going to die. And Annalena was cracking jokes. <laughs> um, just so full of joy, <laughs> even in such a horrifying circumstance. Um, that I found that both fierce and lovely. How else do you face that kind of challenge or watching people that you love die of tuberculosis or suffer from different things? And yet, not that she would make jokes about those things, but, but that she was able to find joy and beauty in pain and hardship. I think that is a great example of something fierce and lovely. I think in my own life, I think about some of, I'm a runner, and so um, I started with another American woman. We started this running club about 10 years ago for Jibushin girls. Um, they had to be on the team. They had to stay in school. So the goal was to keep them in school. And then they could come to um, practice and go to competitions. And eventually we handed over the club to two local women who are now the coaches, these young Somali women. 
And I look at what these Somali girls do that are on the team and their coaches in a culture where it's not super common for women to run. Girls play soccer, football, and they play sports, but it's uh, not as common as it is for men. And so to watch them kind of take running and make it their own, to make it, um, to decide what they feel comfortable with culturally and not comfortable with, and then to just own it and to be strong and to build this community of runners together. Uh, I find that really fierce and lovely. And I love being able to be kind of behind the scenes watching it happen and watching these girls grow into the coaching role and to just take what they love, which is running and what they believe in, which is education and give it to their own communities. I love that. I love that you started something and handed it over to local leaders and empowered them in that way. Even though it's something that you're so passionate about yourself, that takes a lot mm-hmm. to do You're that. so much better at coaching the team than I would be. <laughs> oh, Rachel, I I am so excited to finish your book. I've you know, I've started it and I feel like there's a bit of a mystery. I'm, I'm hanging on the, you know, learning more about Annalena's life. And so I'm excited to point my listeners to it and I will direct them um, to where they can find it in the show notes. And I just wish you the best as you return to uh, Djibouti in a, less than two weeks and get are separated from your older kids. I'm sure that's difficult. Um, and yet that's, that's your life. That's home. So I wish you all the best. And I'm so grateful that you were able to join me on the po- podcast today. Thank you so much. This has been really fun. Great questions. Okay, moms of young teens who have grabbed a copy of my book, A Voice Becoming, or who are considering it, who are thinking about how do we transition our girls into women, how do we help make it through middle school, if you're looking at a 10, 11, 12, 13-year-old girl and you're thinking at all about what in the world you're going to do with her, I want to point you to my book, A Voice Becoming. And for those of you who have already read it and done it with your daughter, I just it came to mind because Rachel's book is an example of a book that I would do with one of my girls during a becoming year. As I consider the life of Annalena um, and just getting her off the pedestal, seeing the fullness of who she is, the the humanity, the hard decisions she had to make. I think about a woman who sacrifices. I think about a woman who fights. Uh, So many great examples could come from this book and from Annalena's life and from Rachel's life. So for those of you who are looking for some current ideas to do with your daughter, Uh, Let me point you to this book and to my own A Voice Becoming, a year-long mother-daughter journey into passionate purpose living. You can pick up either of our books anywhere books are sold. Uh, Last I looked, Walmart was having a sale on mine, $7.50 for a hardback copy. So go into the show notes, find out more. Um, Think about how to be intentional with the young women in your life. And just as a personal takeaway, I just love thinking about what would it be like if we took all of ourselves off the pedestals, if we took all of our heroines, all of the the big voices out there that we look up to and respect, and we just let them come down from the pedestal. We just let them be human. We just let them make errors and let them learn, just like Rachel uh, said that Annalena had done. 
Well, I hope that you have enjoyed another episode of the Fierce and Lovely podcast. Join us in the Facebook group to continue dialoguing about this or on Instagram at Fierce Lovely. I will see you there and I will tune back with you next week.